Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. At least three area theater companies in Connecticut are showcasing work by Latinx women playwrights. Espejos Clean is running at Hartford Stage through February 5th. Queen of Basil is on at Theater Works from February 3rd to the 26th. And Water by the Spoonful just wrapped up after a five-day run at the Capitol Classics all in Hartford. Today on Where We Live, we hear from the playwrights, directors, and actors behind each production. They talk about the importance of bringing Latinx stories to diverse audiences. And just a quick note here to say that you can find all the information on the productions on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. First, we turn to TheaterWorks in Hartford, where Queen of Basil is days away from the first performance. Hilary Bettis is the playwright for Queen of Basil, and Christina Angeles directed the play. Thank you both for joining us today. Of course. I'm excited to Thanks be Thanks so here. much for having us. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So I want to start with Hillary. Queen of Basil is a spin on a play called Miss Julie, which was written by a pretty controversial Swedish writer, August Strindberg. And a lot of critics say his work was steeped in sexism. Hillary, I understand you weren't a huge fan of the play. Walk us through your early vision and why Miss Julie in terms of you were determining to update? Well, I I, I hate this play with a passion. Um, and the, the origin story behind it is a, a, a good friend of mine runs a theater in Miami called Miami New Drama. He's a Venezuelan expat who had fled Chavez and um, had... Um, done a lot of theater in Venezuela. And so his vision for Miami was to sort of bring together, you know, Venezuelan audiences and Cuban audiences and the, um, you know, white audiences that were all, that all kind of went to different types of theaters, but they didn't really go to the same theater. And so he wanted to commission a play that was familiar in the canon, but could also be adapted and updated for Miami and he and I had gone way back and so he called me and said do you want to do this and I said I hate it I hate this place so much so that's probably a good reason to dig into it so I went to Miami for a couple of weeks and started working on the play down there with him with really like this very specific audience in mind um and so that that was sort of how how this play was born. Um, and I, I, I really, I, I wanted to both um, have an, uh, you know, you can't escape the misogyny of the play. So I didn't want to shy away from it. And I didn't want to sugarcoat it. And I really wanted to be like, unapologetically honest about it. And at the same time, also have this conversation about like, the Latinx diaspora, and all of the, you know, cultural, and class and and race um 
uh, sort of infighting that happens within the diaspora that I don't think really gets talked about in um, the American culture. I think in the United States, we sort of think, oh, Latinx is just like one big monolith, but it's really like, you know, many, many, many different cultures and ethnicities and backgrounds and, you know, class is so big in Latin America. And so I really wanted to just like unapologetically dig into all of it. And at the same time, still have a conversation about like, well, what does human dignity mean? And can three people who are having this like no holds barred power struggle in the kitchen, can they still walk out of it at the end with some sort of um, dignity and maybe a little bit of hope and redemption intact, which I think is the opposite of what Strindberg did. He really was like, women are weak and they should be submissive to men and and it doesn't matter class or how beautiful you are and how you know poor and rough around the edges a, a, a man is he still ultimately has more power and so you know and and he really treated um both both julie and christine in the original play as um um props to make the argument and so i really wanted to like turn that on the on his head by treating all three of the characters equally and with dignity in both their flaws and their ugliness as well as their vulnerability and their humanity. So that's sort of like the big uh, the big uh, origin story of this play. Well, I love a big origin story and a sprinkle of hate and passion in my coffee this morning, so I appreciate <laughs> that a lot. <laughs> and, you know, this is an adaptation, and so there's change. And you were trying to draw out empathy for this new Miss Julie figure, um, you know, going a lot of sort of the other direction, like you mentioned earlier, where Strindberg was going. But how did audiences react to that? I know audiences tend to be very touchy when it comes to change. What are your thoughts? Oh, man, I think people either, well, people either love or hate the original and people, I think, still either love or hate this play. And, you you know, but it's really, I think, the nature of the the, the material itself. Um, I have, you know, I've had at this point, um, I've had productions of this play all over the country, um, all over the East Coast and several in Texas and San Francisco. And people tend to either love it or hate it. I, you know, I think people don't know what to do with the the Spanish in it, even though the Spanish is translated. And so even, you know, English speaking audiences still get really everything that is said in the play. Um, but, but I think that that was done intentionally to, um, you know, really make audiences feel a little bit of an outsider in this, which I think happens a lot when you're, you know, a, a, an, an immigrant or you're, you speak another language that, you know, or English is your second language. And so I wanted to flip that on its head and people definitely have strong reactions about that. Um, and I think that the misogyny honestly is still something that we are you know racism as well but but with miss julie especially like it's still very easy to hate her and i think a lot of audiences do without um without even like taking a step back and saying wait why do i have these strong feelings about this woman like why is it still okay to hate her you know and and i think that's really something that's very interesting that's come up a lot with this play um yeah 
And when we think about this generational spin on Miss Julie, you know, set within the Latinx community during Art Basel in Miami, why did you choose this massive art fair as a backdrop? Art Art Basel is like there is nothing, there's no more like ostentatious and grotesque display of of wealth in the world. I think than Art Basel, it is like, you know, you have billionaires, you have celebrities, you have um, CEOs, you have really like the wealthiest of the wealthiest coming together. Um, and there are these massive parties, millions and millions of dollars spent on parties. And I think the thing that I find so fascinating about Miami in particular, I mean, you could say this about most American cities, but, you know, the wealth inequality in Miami is right in your face. And I think most cities, New York included, you know, you have massive skyscrapers, you can sort of hide it, you can be on one block, and it's beautiful. And, you know, you go two blocks down the street, and you you see the the, um, you know, the the decay or, or the, you know, project housing that's falling apart, but you can sort of keep your blinders on. Miami doesn't have that you literally have like these massive, massive mansions, and two blocks down the street is project housing falling apart and there's nothing hiding it there's no big buildings there's no tall trees there's nothing that sort of allows you to keep this uh uh, facade of the us and them separated and so art basil is like that on crack it's literally like here is all of the privilege in the universe and we're sort of unapologetically like rubbing it in the faces of the haves and the have-nots and so that's a big part of why I chose Art Basel and also because a lot of the people that go see theater in Miami probably also go to Art Basel and I wanted to have a conversation about class and the display of wealth and how you know and and doing it in a way that that you know, makes us maybe take our blinders off a little bit and and have to look at how that affects other people. Well, I'm not gonna lie, when I saw Art Basel, the first thing that came into my mind was the duct taped banana a couple years ago. So you're not wrong there. Um, This show is an all Latinx production. I want to bring Christina Angeles in, who is the director of the play. Uh, We know you're a major factor in bringing the show to life through casting and staging. Uh, Talk to us about why that was so important. Yeah, I mean, I think that Hillary was so specific in the creation of each of these characters. You know, Strindberg was an inspiration, but this is very much uh, this is very much a stray away from what he did. Um, and so when I see, you know, especially as like the daughter of a white Puerto Rican woman and a black Dominican man, like when I see that the characters are very specific in their ethnicity as well as in their race when it comes to uh, the Latinx and Latina community, I immediately was drawn to it. Um, just because like Hillary said, no one, like the fact that we as Latina people exist on a spectrum is rarely even talked about, let alone put on a stage for us. Um, and so it was less so my own decision. It was, And it was more so me respecting the play and what Hillary was really going for in terms of our casting process and making sure that, you know, we were as specific as humanly possible while also knowing that none of these characters were one-dimensional in any way. Um, and so 
while we needed very specific actors, we also needed the kind of performers who could really, um, who could really like play in every corner of the field. Um, and then when it came to selecting our team, I mean, I could not be more excited to shout from the rooftops that our entire design team, including our intimacy director and our dialect coach are all from the Latina community. Um, and it's uh, an opportunity that I never thought I would have uh, in my career to be working like on a story about our people with our people. Um, and so it's just added so much more. Uh, I think everyone feels a little bit more at home when they're working on the play. I think everyone feels uh, less of a need to really explain themselves and more of a freedom to just be themselves. Um, and so it's been really exciting, especially to work on something that's, you know, it's like a good tennis match. You're watching these really different people just sparring with one another and really shedding light on so many of our differences. Um, and it's been pretty incredible. I was going to ask, you're premiering this Friday and how excited are you? But I can hear from your voice that you are very excited. Is there anything in particular in particular that you're looking forward to? Oh, man, I'm excited for audience reactions. Our first preview is this Friday. Um, and even when we did our designer run, it was so awesome to hear like other Latinx artists responding to the play. Um, and it was really helpful for us to, you know, hear laughter that wasn't just me and my assistant directors <laughs> and figure out, you know, what's really hitting home, what's not. Um, and I'm also really excited for my family to come see the play. They are all driving out. I mean, we have a cast of three, but I'm pretty sure 40 of our family members are all coming within the next week. Um, and so we're excited to, you know, show our work to our people. That sounds amazing. And uh, Hillary, real quick, you know, this is presented in a bilingual format with simultaneous uh, translation in English and Spanish. Can you tell us how it works and why is that important for you to do? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I wanted to honor the reality and the experience of, you know, Christine is, she's a Venezuelan um expat who she's undocumented in Venezuela and and is you know really trying to figure out just how to survive in this this world and so the language that she is most comfortable speaking is Spanish it's her first language and so when there is this sort of big emotional climax for her it didn't make sense logically emotionally authentic Authent oh my gosh, I cannot speak this morning. <laughs> Authentically for this character to speak in English, even though it's a it's a majority English speaking audience. And so I wanted to it, it was important to to, you know, as a writer in general, you have to write from a place of complete honesty, otherwise you're not doing your job. And so it it wouldn't have been right for me to to make that in English for the sake of the audience when that wouldn't be truthful to the character um and yet she is also communicating with 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 um julie and so there is some translation happening so that that this this three-way conversation with these three people um can happen at the same time and yet their their understanding of spanish and english like john is you know he's first generation cuban 
And so his he's more comfortable in English. And so his Spanish is broken. And so I, I also think like metaphorically speaking, it's like how things get lost in translation, how things can become misunderstood, how, you know, and also at the same time, there's this deeper emotional rawness that has happened between these three people. They're, they're all like, you know, sort of dark night of the soul. And they're also communicating on, on another human level that doesn't require language. And so that is also what I hope that the audience leans into at the same time. And so I, I really think that that moment is a metaphor for our, 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 you know, diaspora, the United States, how we misunderstand each other, how we judge each other, how the need to communicate is so much deeper than language. Um, so yeah, that that was a that was the thinking behind that. And I I worked with, you know, I I don't I don't speak Spanish. My my family, my mother's side, of my family is um, was all about assimilation and didn't teach that. My grandparents didn't teach their children Spanish, and so it's very much like lost with my generation. But um, it was really important to get it to get it just right, to make it feel like a Venezuelan as opposed to Cuban Spanish or Mexican Spanish. Or, um, and so I worked very closely with um, translators and there were very passionate debates um, amongst many of the actors I've worked with about the Spanish and different interpretations of it. And so, um, but but ultimately I, I'm I'm really happy with what we landed on. Well, I'm really glad you mentioned the nuances just within the language, because every time I read something translated, I always wonder, what am I missing? And I wish I can, you know, read and understand and speak all of the languages. And so thank you so much for sharing that. And again, for our listeners, you can find information on all three productions and how to attend or support them on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is Where We Live. I'm Catherine Shen. You've been hearing from playwright Hilary Bettis and director Christina Angeles. Thank you both for your time today and giving us a little sneak peek behind the scenes. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you. And coming up next, Cindy Martinez is a Connecticut-based playwright starring in Water by the Spoonful. You can join the conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. From. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I'm Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. At least three plays written by Latinx women are running on Connecticut stages this winter. Today, we're hearing from the cast and crew behind the productions, including Water by the Spoonful, which is a Pulitzer Prize-winning play from Chiara Alegria Hoodies, who also wrote the book In the Heights. Water by the Spoonful just wrapped up a five-day run at the University of St. Joseph's Hoffman Auditorium in West Hartford. The play was part of the Contemporary Classics Conversation Series hosted by Capital Classics. And joining me me now to talk about Water by the Spoonful is Sin Martinez. She's a Connecticut-based actor and playwright who plays Odessa in the play. Thanks for joining us, Sin. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Sin, you grew up in Hartford, and you've put on and performed and work here, which we'll get to in a little bit. But first, Mm -hmm. what are your feelings after just wrapping up this particularly powerful show? Yeah, so powerful indeed, for sure. Um, Playing uh, Odessa, you know, in this story has um, felt like home, but also um, it was challenging emotionally. It's um, very heavy what her journey has been in this particular place in the story for for this performance. It's um, it's a lot of emotional um, sort of moments for her and her struggles and her challenges. Um, And although she's trying to um, mother in the ways that she can, uh, this has been, you know, quite, quite the road to play for sure. (laughs) And I was going to say, can you give us a little idea of what the play is about and a little and, and tell us who Odessa is? Yes. So Odessa is the mother, the biological mother of her son who has currently served in Iraq. Um, She herself was a very young mother. She fell into substance use and um, lost, you know, custody of her son to her sister, who in the in this play, her sister dies. Um, And her son, all his emotions and all the resentment that he's feeling is sort of pouring out um, very strong and heavy and he takes that opportunity to seek out his biological mom and and hopes that perhaps maybe she's ready now to love him maybe she's ready now to mother him and he missed out on all this and surely she regrets it all as well and she's currently sober and she has been dedicating her time to helping others um, in their um, sobriety. And so she had, you know, rechanneled her nurturing um, desires to these people she really have never met. And it's they're engaging on this online platform for folks in recovery. And as a playwright, can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to read this Pulitzer winning script? And what was your process of channeling and performing Odessa? You know, as a player myself, there is something that um, 
there are a lot of uh, the connecting the dots that just were a lot more easier for me being on the other side. Um, so coming in as, you know, an actor with these, with this ensemble, this cast, you know, I, we found ourselves sort of, you know, analyzing the script and, and, and looking deeper at some moments within the piece. And I found myself just like, sometimes leading the conversation like hey i think this is what she meant to her because if i wrote this i think i surely would have met this in that moment um so it's it's definitely a lot easier to interpret the piece um especially um through the lens of latin a of latinx um you know a lot of culture is in this piece and it was just so easy for me to relate and to connect and then to shed light on some moments with the rest of the cast. Now, as far as like performing Odessa, um, and I echo this from our, you know, our other guest said earlier, it felt like home. Um, There are moments in the play where, you know, my niece Yaz is um, discussing a moment where she was dyeing another relative's hair and then like, having to hold the the box and read the directions and make sure they're doing it right. And she was like really young doing this for another family member. I'm like, oh my God, I remember those moments in my own family and very similar conversations <laughs> were had. So um, it was a pleasure to be able to uh, perform a piece that um, I was so familiar with and the, and the language was just easy for me to sort of embrace and um, perform for an audience that um, typically, you know, we made sure, the cast and I just made sure to invite so many like first timers to a theatrical performance. And um, we were excited about that. And we were there every step of the way for these new audiences to see this type of show um, with like giving them fair warning about the topics that will be discussed, but also the layout because there were going to be community conversations that were happening as well. I love that you mentioned home because I think that's the third time that's been mentioned mm-hmm. so far. And so it's yeah. kind of giving me the warm and fuzzies on this very, very cold day. And yes. <laughs> you mentioned that you're so you're a you're a playwright and you have had work at Heartbeat Ensemble and Theater Works. How does that experience inform how you thought about this particular role? So um, thankfully, you know, I've um, worked with Harvard Ensemble for so many years and was able to um, learn and do throughout the years with creating um, new work, but also um, being a part of plays that spoke to the injustices of the world, but also made a great effort to be inclusive of a variety of, of audience members and stories that they connect to and felt familiar with themselves. So um, I feel lucky to have had that. You know, I've been in spaces and I've touched scripts um, that I just had the hardest time connecting to or understanding, to be quite frank. Um, and so, you know, coming across Water by the Spoonful, and it was just another experience for me as a, a, a creative person to to be able to feel like confident, right, coming into something um, from beginning to end. So we definitely want to come back um, later on to talk about your earlier work, um, inspired mm-hmm. by you know you growing up here in Hartford. But can you just give us a little preview of what are you working on now, or what are you working on next? 
Sure. So my latest play in development is called Moonlighters, um, and it follows um, two Puerto Rican um, women that end up working with each other and become really close friends. So it does friends uh, center of friendship and um, this cariño that, um, in other words, this affection that they have towards each other. Um, but also it's a little bit of sci-fi in there. It's a little futuristic. Um and it does have some heavy tones to the story, but it is very light and heartfelt story of these two women. Um, and so that is, I'm almost done with calling it a finished script. So mm-hmm. I'm very close. So I'm dedicating the next two months to my final edits and my hopes and dreams and goals for for this play and even my other play, Pegao, um, is to um, get it produced um, at a theater, um, whether I go the route of self-producing, whether it gets picked up by a um, institution um, for a premiere, um, or, you know, that perhaps Moonlighters can get picked up for a, like a technical designer's residencies program um, somewhere um, in this nation or even away. <laughs> Um, because it's um, it's definitely like a designer, a technical designer's like dream come true. This sort of world that I'm trying to set up for Moonlighters, so I'm excited about it. I love that you're crossing the genre. So any technical directors out there, get on this. Um, <laughs> we've also we only have like a minute left, but I do want to jump really quickly on. We've been hearing music from John Coltrane this hour, which is a part of this play soundtrack. Can you speak mm-hmm. to why um, why John Coltrane's music? <laughs> So, um, you know, with jazz and and my uh, niece, Yaz, is a music professor in the play, and she speaks a lot about um, dissonance, and she speaks um, to how when she was first learning to compose music, how she thought everything just had to go together. Everything had to be smooth and and was told that, you know, if you operate from opposite sides of the spectrum, something beautiful can come of it, too. So I think how that translates to the story is, um, you know, whether you're someone struggling or whether you're kind of on the opposite side and everything's kind of going lovely that you can still meet in the middle and perhaps be the person to help save someone else or help someone else. And, you know, and be in in other words, if you're struggling, that there is help out there. And if you reach out that perhaps um, things can turn around for you and yeah. That sounds beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And again, for our listeners, you can find information on all the productions and how to support them on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. Sin Martinez, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. It was a pleasure. Coming up next, Melissa Crespo is a director for Spejos Clean, a bilingual play running at Hartford Stage. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shin. We're taking you behind the scenes of three plays on Hartford stages written by Latinx women. Espejos, Clean, is a two-hand or two-actor bilingual show set in Cancun. It's on a Hartford stage through February 5th. And joining me now is the show's director, Melissa Crespo, who is also the associate artistic director for the Syracuse stage. Thanks, Melissa, for joining us today. Melissa, are you there? 
Sounds like we don't have Melissa on the line right now. We're going to take a quick break to see if we can get her back on. Check back in us with us in a second. Hello, hello. Oh, oh, she is there. Hi, Melissa. How's it going? Oh, hi. I can hear you. You can hear me. <laughs> okay, great. Well, I'm glad we got that solved real quick. Just want to remind our listeners that you can also join the conversation, 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Well, appreciate the intermission. Just want to jump straight to the fact that you grew up in Connecticut, but this is your first time directing in your home state, and it's also a co-production between Hartford and Syracuse Stages. Can you tell us a little bit about why this show is so unique? Yes, thank you for having me. And so this show is uh, completely bilingual. Uh, One character speaks majority in Spanish. The other character speaks in English. And it's with two women going through very similar but different (laughs) circumstances, hence the name of the play in Spanish, the word espejos means mirrors. And uh, it's it's unlike anything that I've ever read or seen, and I'm really excited for audiences to to experience it. We're going to get to know some of these characters and take a listen at a short clip. It's very disappointing. It is very inconvenient. Surely there must be something you can do? Y luego, como en media hora, van a estar chingando de sus cuartos que sus sábanas no están limpias cuando los huevones salieron rodando de sus camas hace como una hora. So our listeners can't see the transcriptions above um, Emma R- R- uh, Ramos's head, but she and fellow actor Kate Abrusesi are both responding to sudden rain at their hotel. Emma's character Adriana is calling colleagues to actions on different floors or pisos via radio, while Kate's character Sarah is sort of loving it and what it means for her sister's wedding. So Melissa, how does this moment exemp- exemplify some of the show's main themes? So this moment is one of my favorite because it's very early in the play where we've really spent time before this moment getting to know each of the characters separately, but the rain brings them together in their shared experience of it, even though the reactions are completely different. Um, And then we get to really see the mirroring happen. And so the rain triggers a memory in both of the characters and then that, then we go into um, the first time where we get to see each woman uh, in their personal lives outside of the resort, and we get to learn more about them on a personal level. And so this is a cast of two, which is incredible to think about, um, even from a directorial standpoint. Um, tell me a little bit about that experience. Was it difficult? Was it easy? What was that like for you? Well, I I love two-hander plays. Uh, they're, it's very intimate because you only have two people to focus on. And Emma and Kate are old friends of mine, and they're one of the, some of the most talented actors I know. And with how brilliant they both are, it was such a joy in the rehearsal room to work with both of them because we really crafted the play world as a team it wasn't just me telling them what to do because this play is so imaginative both characters are talking in first person they break the fourth wall they talk to the audience they're also um, always jumping into other characters in their lives and 
it's really uh, a feat of imagination and uh we we re- and there's you know playing with time and jumping in and out of memory and fantasy even and so uh we had a lot of fun figuring out what the rules of the world that Christine Quintana the playwright uh, has written for us cuz she's really written what I love to call an impossible play. There's so many locations and so many other characters that you really have to use your imagination because there's no way to do it literally. Otherwise, it would be a film. So we had a really fun time figuring all of that out, especially in both languages. And I was going to say, this is a bilingual show with supertitles projected over the actors. How how has uh, reactions been to supertitles? And can you explain what are they? So yeah, supertitles are similar to captions when you turn them on your TV when you're watching a foreign film or you just, you know, want to read what the actors are saying. Or if anyone's been to opera, uh, supertitles are an old thing in the opera because, you know, typically they're performed in other languages. And so uh, the the beautiful thing about this is it's not only just when the uh, Mexican character, by her name is Adriana, when she speaks in Spanish, there's English supertitles. But when Sarah's speaking in English and her character is Canadian, we have Spanish supertitles. So it's really meant for anyone speaking in either language or you only have to know one or the other to really fully experience and appreciate the show. But beyond that, we have a very talented projection designer. Her name is Lisa Renkel, who created such an amazing visual story with the video design in addition to the supertitles and the supertitles sometimes even break the rule of just being text and they come alive in terms of video art and so uh it's it's really a thrilling visual experience well i love that you tie it to visual art because i know subtitles is still kind of a new thing for a lot of people let alone supertitles and do you think bilingual shows will become more common especially since from this conversation it feels like home for a lot of people and with the exposure of of our own sort of pop culture in terms of of international stories what what do you think about that being more common in the future do you think it will I think it's it's already happening. Uh, we there was this beautiful play that just premiered off Broadway last year called English by Sanaz Tuvi. That's literally about uh, folks uh, who speak Farsi learning the uh, trying to pass the TOEFL exam, and it goes back and forth between Farsi and English. There's so many other plays out there that are playing with language, and uh, and I think also with you know, look at the the movie Parasite that won the Oscar a year back or so. Um, and, you know, with Netflix and other uh, TV streaming services, you know, really jumping into different language markets. I think we have an appetite for other languages. And I think it's also really important. I think it's incredibly humbling when you don't understand everything going on, because that's what a lot of people experience with if they're not multilingual. And I think there's also something really beautiful to, you know, not understanding the language, but getting the essence of what that person is going through or feeling or saying, which is my hope when people come to see Espejos, where sometimes they don't even have to look at the supertitles to really get the full experience of what each woman is going through because her acting and 
her expressiveness and what she's feeling and expressing on stage, but, uh, uh, you know, what that's being felt from the audience. So I think it's going to keep happening. I think it's going to happen more, and I'm really excited to see it. Well, thanks for reminding me that I still have to watch Parasite. And I love your description of being able to feel the emotions while not understanding. I certainly experienced that watching shows or movies that I don't understand the language. But um, so this is such an important thing for you to do. And it's your first time or directing a show in your home state. Does that add something extra special to that experience? Oh, absolutely. So uh, I live in Syracuse. New York, because of course I'm the associate artistic director at Syracuse Stage, and even when I was, you know, living in New York City, but directing all around the country, oftentimes my family couldn't see my work, and so it was a real special experience to have my mom beside me uh, and my family members at opening night because they only live an hour away, <laughs> and so uh, and we have uh, Hartford has an enormous uh, Latina population; it's about eighty percent. And it was pretty wonderful hearing the audience's reaction during previews when I was still at Hartford watching the show and working on it because you can hear when the Spanish speakers were in the audience because they would, you know, be reacting to the Spanish, which at certain times is a little more colorful than the translations we're giving. So uh, I, I, I'm very fortunate. I'm very grateful that Hartford Stage agreed to co-produce the show with Syracuse. And it's been, it's been really wonderful. You've been listening to Melissa Crespo. She's directing the play Espejos Clean, which is on Hartford Stage through February 5th. Thank you so much for joining us today, Melissa. March 5th, March 5th. Oh, March 5th. All right, March 5th. Correction, March 5th, guys. (laughs) Well, thank you again for joining us. It was a pleasure. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.